Welcome back everyone to Neurology Exam Prep from Yale University Neurology Department. My name is Safa Abdelhakim, I'm a PGY3 of the Neurology Program and I have with me Dr. Jennifer Kim for part two of intracerebral hemorrhages, um, subarachnoid hemorrhage. How are you doing Dr. Kim? I'm good Safa, thank you for having me back. Of course, thank you. Yeah. Um, so I think the most common etiologies that you'll run into for subarachnoid hemorrhage are um, trauma and then um, aneurysms. Um, and so those are probably the two most common reasons for uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, there are some more rare reasons for subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, you know, sort of venous plexus rupture, um, you know, some sort of cervical AVMs, things like or, uh, vascular malformations, um, but they tend to be much more rare. I see. And what are common sites vascularly that we should be looking for when we evaluate patients with subarach? Yeah. So again, it depends a little bit on the, the mechanism, right? So if it's a trauma, then, um, then the subarachnoid hemorrhage tends to be a little bit more cortically based and diffuse. Um, and so more towards the surface of the brain. Whereas if, um, you know, if the presentation history is more that sort of classic med school, worst headache of life, sudden onset and collapse, um, then your suspicion for aneurysm is much higher in someone who gets scanned and has subarachnoid hemorrhage. And so if it's aneurysm that, um, that is highest on your differential, then really you're looking mostly around the circle of Willis um, for your aneurysm locations. Um, in terms of the, um, the aneurysms, they can, you know, you can have them, I would say most commonly they would be, um, you know, the anterior communicating artery, the uh, posterior communicating artery, um, the MCA bifurcation, uh, the sort of proximal ICA locations, and then you, and then in the posterior circulation, so the tip of the basilar um, and the PCAs. But you can really have aneurysms at any of those um, any of those locations. You can also have aneurysms uh, off off of some of those, like the the pica, for instance, um, as well. Again, more more unusual, but but certainly exist. What are some other factors uh, that we can think of when it comes to risk, um, as well as just uh, complications of uh, subarachnoid bleeds as well as prognosis? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that the two biggest risk factors for coming in with subarachnoid hemorrhage um, that's due to aneurysm are um, smoking and hypertension. Um, and um, And so those are the two most common things that we see. Um, in terms of risk factors. Um, and so often um, either, either in patients who've had their bleed and survived or patients who you incidentally found, find an aneurysm, counseling them on very good blood pressure control and smoking sensation are probably two of the most important medical interventions that we can provide these patients. Um, and so those are risk factors that you definitely want to um, take into account. Um, age is also um, you know, a potential risk factor is as you get older, many of these aneurysms, you know, grow over time. And so you want to definitely look at those different, you definitely want to sort of be monitored over time if it's an unruptured aneurysm. And then if you have had a rupture, then you do want continued monitoring um, thereafter just to make sure that you don't have the uh, recurrence of, or the uh, sort of development of new ones or the recurrence of your old one. 
Um, and then in terms of sort of other more unusual risk factors, there are certainly genetic conditions that predispose you to having um, aneurysms in general um, and multiple aneurysms. Um, so uh, the ones that we learn in medical school are the sort of polycystic kidney disease, um, some of these connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos, um, other sort of um, and other connective tissue uh, disorders um, or sort of blood vessel sort of abnormality disorders like um, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia and things like that. Um, yeah, in terms of, um, you know, risk factors for actual rupture um, you know, or, or multiple aneurysms, family history is also a big one. So, um, you know, if you have a family history of aneurysms, you're more likely to have, especially in multiple first degree relatives, you're more likely to have aneurysms if they have if a family member has had a rupture, your risk of rupture is higher. Um, and then in terms of um, aneurysm size, um, you know, the traditional cutoff is greater than greater than seven millimeters uh, in terms of uh, likelihood size-wise with um, increased risk of rupture. Um, but, also, uh, but also anything that has, um, you know, that grows quickly over, you know, over a monitored period um, tends to be high risk for rupture, as well as any ab, um, sort of unusual features like these little kind of daughter domes or daughter blebs that come off the main aneurysm. Those tend to be very weak, and so they're at high rate risk for rupture as well. So those are all kind of considerations in patients that um, are, have not yet ruptured, but once they've already ruptured um, and come into the hospital with subarachnoid hemorrhage, then we're just kind, kind of um, dealing with the, um, you know, trying to treat the aneurysm so it doesn't continue to, to bleed and cause um, further injury. So there are two scoring systems that we often use for subarachnoid hemorrhage, the modified Fisher and Hunt-Hess. Uh, would you mind uh, talking us through the Hunt-Hess scoring system? Sure, absolutely. So the Hunt-Hess scoring system is basically a clinical severity score of subarachnoid hemorrhage. So you're looking at a patient's exam and figuring out um, sort of how severe their subarachnoid hemorrhage is based on your clinical exam. So the exam goes from one to five, where one is basically like very mild headache, and then five is completely comatose. Um, you have sort of grading within within that, and those all... Um, correlate with mortality. Um, in terms of um, the modified Fisher scale, that is a radiographic severity scale. And so you basically split patients based on whether their subarachnoid hemorrhage is thick or thin in terms of um, a diameter around the circle of Willis and, um, and whether they have intraventricular hemorrhage or not, okay? And so that is a grading scale from one to four, where one is thin blood um, and no intraventricular hemorrhage, two is thin blood with intraventricular hemorrhage, three is thick blood with in, without intraventricular hemorrhage, and four is thick blood and intra intraventricular hemorrhage. Modified fissure tends to be used in terms of understanding risk of complications, one of which we'll talk about in a minute, which is delayed cerebral ischemia. What are uh, immediate things that when it comes to management that we need to be aware of? So um, just like the hemorrhages that we talked about before, um, you know, blood pressure management is a, is a big immediate thing that we need to do in these patients. And um, I would say, uh, unlike IPH, there is a more 
sort of universally guided um, or universally practiced blood pressure parameter of 140. And so most practitioners will use 140 as a ceiling and then, you know, use um, nicardipine or other medications to try to um, keep the blood pressure below that because you don't want the patient to have any further what we call re-rupture, re-bleeding of the, of the, um, of the aneurysm. And um, so that's one thing that we do in these patients, um, even though seizures are, um, uh, you know, so, so, so seizures are not super common, but we, um, but if they were to have a seizure um, in the immediate time period, their risk of rebleeding is very high. And so uh, we also give them uh, anti-seizure medicines uh, upfront to try to help uh, prevent them from having seizures um, in this initial period until uh, we're able to what we call secure the aneurysm or, or get rid of the uh, aneurysm, uh, the risk of, of re-rupture um, itself. Um, and then uh, finally um, is to basically surgically um, intervene upon the aneurysm. So um, a long time ago, there was a feeling like you had to let the aneurysm quote unquote cool off. And so people wouldn't be intervened upon for multiple days and the risk of people re-rupturing and dying was very high. And so they realized, oops, that's probably not the right way to manage these patients. And so now the standard practice is to what we call secure the aneurysm within 24 hours. So the way that you do that surgically, there's two options. So one is to uh, the classic way, which is to do an open craniotomy and put a clip, a metal clip across the base of the aneurysm. Um, and that basically, um, you know, prevents any further, um, you know, blood leakage through the aneurysm itself. Um, and so that's a, a very long standing and definitive way for treating aneurysms. But as you can imagine, it's extraordinarily invasive to open up one's head and sort of dig around to the bottom of their brain of their skull. Um, and so more recently, um, you know, endovascular therapy or intraarterial therapy has been a mainstay approach that um, a lot of institutions have turned to as their major way of intervening upon aneurysms. Uh, and so basically what this invo involves is um, putting a catheter up through the artery um, that is um, that has the aneurysm and basically uh, you know there's a couple of different options and um, but basically you put um, some sort of um, device inside the aneurysm like coils to basically fill the aneurysm full of this material so that blood starts to clot in that aneurysm and no and no longer serves as a risk for rupturing okay and so that's um so that's how that works depending on the shape of the aneurysm and the location of the aneurysm more and more and more devices have come on market to really kind of tailor the kinds of treatments you can for aneurysms that were very hard to um, treat before. So, um, so I think the endovascular treatment keeps um, improving overall in terms of the, in terms of what's available, but, um, but there are still some, um, there are still some aneurysms that are best treated um, by clipping. So those are your two main options uh, to treat aneurysms surgically. In terms of endovascular treatment, initially coiling was the only kind of a uh, only type of device that you could um, use to, to treat aneurysms from an endovascular um, approach. Um, but what they found was that aneurysms that did not um, have a, a sort of what we call a narrow neck uh, were problematic for coils because, you know, if you can imagine, a, a, you know, a balloon that you blow up for a party, right, has a big dome 
and a small neck that you kind of blow into. And so if you were to, you know, put a whole bunch of material into the balloon, it would stay inside the balloon. But now if you took that balloon and actually just chopped it in half and, and no longer had that sort of tight neck that you could blow into, right, anything that you tried to put into the balloon would sudden, would just fall right back out. And so that was the problem with uh, treating everything with coils was that the coils would just fall back out. And that's a problem because then you cause big strokes in you know, in that blood vessel because you've occluded it. Um, and so, um, and so now a number of different devices have come on the market to help try to solve that particular problem. One of the um, earliest of which was something called stenting. And so basically just like stents in the heart, you basically put this kind of tube um, across the end, the bottom of the base of the aneurysm in the blood, the parent blood vessel itself. Um, and so that tries to help divert blood flow away from the aneurysm. Now there are fancy things that you can do where you can, once you put the stent in there, you can do something called stent assisted coiling where you actually put coils beyond the stent. And so the stent helps keep the coils in place um, where you know just putting in the coils themselves might not have been sufficient. Um, so that's a popular um, technique that, that's used now. But even but there are some aneurysms which you can't even do that. And so just the stent in and of itself serves as a um, diverter, basically, of blood flow away from the aneurysm. Perfect. Thank you. And I'm sorry that we delved a little clinically here. It's purely because we share the love of vascular <laughs> diseases. Um, how about uh, some medical management aspects? And especially if we can comment on uh, delayed cerebral ischemia and vasospasm, although I know that they're separate entities. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm happy to talk about that because it's a particular research interest of mine as well. Um, but there are actually a lot of complications that can happen as um, after subarachnoid hemorrhage. So not only is... Um, subarachnoid hemorrhage of bad disease up front where there's a high mortality rate up front. People have a lot of complications even if they survive to the hospital. Um, and so we, you know, one of our big jobs as neurointensivists is to really try to help prevent the complications that um, arise after this particular type of bleeding. Um, and so we had already talked about, you know, trying to prevent re-bleeding, right, by treating the aneurysms early. Um, so that's one thing that you want to make sure that you, one complication that you try your best to prevent seizures. Also, again, something that um, you, you make sure that if a patient presented with seizures, that you're treating them appropriately for seizures, or you at least give them seizure prophylaxis medicines prior to um, putting the, uh, prior to intervening upon the aneurysm. I will say the prophylaxis part is a little bit practice uh, or institution dependent in terms of their, their policy, but um, generally that, that is a, a, an accepted approach. Um, and then, um, and then a sodium management and volume management is another um, issue. So people end up with, you know, kinds of wild fluctuations in their sodium, but particularly um, can have a, are at risk for low sodium or hyponatremia. And so figuring out why that is um, can be a complex, um, you know, a complex process either related to um, SIADH, the syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion, or it can be from something called cerebral salt wasting. 
Um, so those are also things that you have to manage and manage differently, um, you know, depending on what you think is most likely, um, either via fluid restriction or fluid re repletion um, and the addition of hyper uh, hypertonic saline, like 1.5 or 3% um, saline um, uh, solutions if needed. Um, and then, um, and then, uh, the, I think that the major one that we all um, talk about a lot is um, something that Safa mentioned, which is uh, delayed cerebral ischemia. So um, delayed cerebral ischemia, or DCI, is uh, basically, you can think of it very simply almost as like a delayed stroke. Um, it's where, you know, a, a part of the brain which did not have a direct injury because of the subarachnoid hemorrhage suddenly does not, um, does not maintain enough sort of um, Per, you know, enough sort of metabolic supply for its increased demand. And so, you know, there's a lot of different theories as to why delayed cerebral ischemia happens, but um, but we know that the risk, it's called delayed because it happens in mostly that three to 14 day risk period. Um, it can extend well beyond that in some patients. And so it can be, you know, up to 21 days, maybe even further than that. Um, but those, but those sort of three to 14 days tends to be that peak period. We don't fully understand why it doesn't start happening initially. There's lots of theories, but, um, but anyway, but that's the, that tends to be that risk window. Um, we, one of the main contributors um, that had been recognized for a long time is, is vasospasm. And so sometimes you'll hear providers use those terms DCI and vasospasm interchangeably, but actually um, they're slightly different. So vasospasm really um, refers to the, the constriction of blood vessels, the abnormal constriction of blood vessels. And it's one of the major reasons for the development of DCI, but it's not the only reason. And you can have vasospasm without ever developing DCI. And so, um, so those are kind of reasons why it's important to separate the two. But understanding that, yes, vasospasm is a major contributor. And so we do lots of things to help monitor for that, one of which is called transcranial Dopplers or TCDs. And so these are tests that um, you know, many institutions do um, on a daily basis. Um, and, and it's basically an ultrasound that you use to like listen to the to the blood flow uh, around the circle of Willis, um, and so you can actually measure the blood flow velocity uh, in these patients, and and you can imagine that um, if the blood flow velocity increases in many of the you know uh, increases in a particular blood vessel that you're measuring, then the most concerning reason for that happening is that the blood vessel is clamping down. So in order to get the same amount of blood flow through that pipe, right, it has to go at a faster velocity. And so that can be an early, you know, that is thought to be a potential early signal for um, patients who are at risk for vasospasm and then, and then subsequently perhaps DCI. Um, and so TCDs are one of the mainstays of, of sort of diagnostic modalities that we have. Um, uh, another modality that um, another modality that we use also is EEG to try to help look for um, changes in the brain activity that we monitor to look for signs of ischemia. So there, um, without going into the grave details, there are lots of EEG changes that happen when the brain starts to become. Um, ischemic. And so we can look for those particular changes to see, again, if there's um, if a, a particular area of tissue is at risk for delayed cerebral ischemia.
So those are kind of two monitoring modalities. But most importantly, our, our most important monitoring modality is our clinical exam. And so, you know, really looking, you know, monitoring these patients very closely and making sure that they don't have, and looking for any kind of clinical exam change, whether it's a, you know, a, a reduction in their awareness or some sort of focal neurologic deficit, those are the things that define DCI, okay? And so, and so really just pay, paying attention to those, um, those clinical changes is extremely important in these patients. And so even though the TCD and EEG exist as diagnostic modalities, really they're supplements to your clinical exam at this point. And so, you know, it's really important to make sure that, you know, um, that's why consistency is nice between providers because then you're examining the same patient every day and really recognizing when there is a, uh, you know, an acute change in their exam. Um, in terms of treatments for um, delayed cerebral ischemia, um, you know, unfortunately there isn't, um, you know, uh, there have been many types of trials that have looked for different, looked at different types of DCI um, treatments, and there has only been one successful trial that has come out, um, and that is for nemodipine. Um, and so that is a, a calcium channel blocker that we administer to patients after subarachnoid hemorrhage to try to help prevent them from developing delayed cerebral ischemia. We don't totally understand how or why it works because other types of vasodilators that have been tried, including other calcium channel blockers, haven't really shown good benefit in in terms of prevention, but um, but it, but nemodipine um, did did show a benefit, and so we continue to use that as a medical management that we do. Um, and then clinically, when you start to find patients who have an increase in um, or an increased concern for delayed cerebral ischemia, again, you worry that the perfusion to their brain is not enough to to meet the sort of needs of that brain tissue area. And so um, sometimes supplementing or augmenting their blood pressure to help try to improve the perfusion to that, um, to that sort of uh, at-risk tissue area is another medical management strategy that we'll have. So we'll use sometimes fluids, but often blood, um, you know, pressors to basically um, increase their blood, a patient's blood pressure to see if that helps improve the exam. So that's one medical management strategy that we have. And then we also have a surgical management strategy, which is, uh, inter which is also endovascular, in which you basically go for a diagnostic angiogram and you look to see if there is evidence of vasospasm. And so if there is evidence of vasospasm, then you can actually administer intraarterial targeted calcium channel blockers like verapamil um, into the blood vessel and watch it vasodilate again. And so that can help um, in terms, and so you always hope that that will be helpful as well in terms of uh, reducing the, the risk of uh, delayed cerebral ischemia. In extreme cases uh, where the vasospasm is very bad, you can actually do angioplasty in those patients as well as another alternative option, but that's um, a high-risk procedure um, in these patients because the vessel is so tense that if you over um, dilate it, it has a risk of rupture. And so you just want to be careful about your consideration of doing that in, in, the, in the patient um, at hand. But, you know, so you're always weighing those risks and balances. But those are the mainstays of uh, DCI treatment that we have currently. You know, my personal hope, again, as I said, since it's a research area interest of mine, is that we'll be able to um, really, you know, identify these, you know, the patients at risk earlier on so that we can really kind of target our treatments, um, new treatments to those, um, to those at-risk patients. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for this amazing review. You know, it's like when you get into like a niche thing that I'm like really, I'm like, oh, I'm, oh, I'm super passionate about this as well. So I would <laughs> write this with you. <laughs> All right.
Take care. All right. Sounds good. Take care. <laughs>